and especially thank Alice and Marin Powell, who helped me so much, uh, especially in uh, fielding translators and negotiating Japanese, which I do not know, and holding my hand uh, through lots of studying. The theme of the festival, the Penn Festival, that is going on all, all this week, there are events uh, tonight and tomorrow and Sunday, is gender and power. And somehow, accidentally, I think that we have tapped into that tonight. <laughs> Where we're talking not so much about gender and power, but, but about gender and language and gender and translation. When I think of gender and language, uh, think of uh, my own studies work with Italian reading Dante. And he was justifying the use of the vernacular that in order to learn vernacular, first of all, you had to have a good wet nurse. That language was something that came through the mother. Whereas Latin was more abstract, it was more scholarly, it involved you know, reading the classics, and so it's much more male-oriented kind of pursuit. And when I think of uh, language about gender and translation, uh, more anecdotally, I mean, translation is a field that is dominated by women. I think language is considered appropriate for women. I used to teach at a language high school, and I would have 30 students, 28 of whom were girls. And when I, I'm an interpreter also, my fellow interpreters are mostly women, my fellow translators are mostly women. But the translation committee has been involved in work recently on translating women. Like, how do we, as translators, make sure that more women are being translated? And it's an effort that I really applaud. It's an area that I sort of reluctant to to having had four sisters and being told never to go into their room as a guest. So whenever I talk about gender, I sort of realize I'm crossing that threshold. <laughs> I'm going sort of as far as I can with that. Um, I was also looking up before I came here in Italian, you talk about lingua, which is feminine, and the linguaggio, which is masculine. And singing the linguaggio, the masculine form, is just used for communication in general. It includes pointing. It includes using your hands. Now, I don't want to put down the male gender. I'm going to be the last person to do that, but I thought it was an interesting distinction because lingua, instead, is a language of a community, a language of a specific community that they use. And the community that we are forming tonight has two women who are connected in a sort of interesting way. We have, uh, I'm just generalizing, of course, I haven't read their complete works in the translation or in the original. But Noemi Daffy from Brazil talks a lot about her mother and her mother and language. And uh, she said, our Japanese guest, sorry with the names, uh, Hiromi Ito instead talks a lot about the body. And she's very visceral as a poet. She talks about it and sometimes you feel like some of these poems, not the poem tonight necessarily, but certainly a series of poems that she did are very visceral, coming straight from the body, coming straight from her experience as her mother. I'm very happy, having said all of that, that you could join me on this adventure tonight. Our setup is going to be this. We will have uh, one writer, one poet to read first, and then two different translators will read. Then we'll compare, we'll have a short discussion with them, and then we will open it up to questions from the audience. We're not looking for the best we're looking, because all of our translators are good. Everyone is above average, I should say. Um, but we're looking at why they make the decisions that they make, what informs their decisions, what feelings lie behind them, what kind of education uh, 
rather than another room could have had two. Having said that, let me invite the first group, uh, Noemi Jaffe, a writer, poet, and teacher, who I would like to applaud, actually, for getting her PhD after that teaching career, for beginning her writing career at the age of 45. I think that's just terrific. <laughs> Até lá, 
esses índios aromadaços de Quiruá é misteriosamente um lugar no espaço e no tempo. É lá para onde as coisas vão e de onde as coisas vêm, e ao dizer até lá, é como se pudéssemos finalmente, como promessa e como cumprimento, por uma vez, alcançá-las. Quando chega o momento de cumprir o até lá, quando aquele lá vir agora e aqui, estranhamente o lá permanece intacto, uma fonte inexaurível que não cessa de se distanciar. Se não fosse assim, por que então, em vez de simplesmente dizer não sei, dizemos muito mais enfaticamente sei lá. Sei lá é não sei, não quero saber. É uma declaração de que meu interesse pelo assunto está lá e de lá não vai sair. Foi para lá, portanto não vai voltar. O contrário disso, entretanto, é a expressão linda lá vou eu, indicando agora sim um desejo potente e confiante de, nesse caso, ir para lá. Lá vou eu é o enfrentamento de um desafio, é um aqui e agora carregado de lá, portanto mais nobre, a própria inversão da frase, lá vou eu, em vez de eu vou lá, já empresta nobreza e coragem ao sujeito que lá vai. É como um seja o que Deus quiser laico, cujo resultado é, no mínimo, engrandecedor. Quem diz e realiza a promessa de lá vou eu, pode dizer que esteve lá. Gertrude Stein, enriquecendo a pobreza do inglês, pelo menos nesse sentido, diz que não ficaria nos Estados Unidos porque there is no there there. É verdade. O inglês, forçado ao pragmatismo, perdeu o sentido longínquo e incognoscível de um there maciço, inexpugnável. There se tornou simplesmente o contrário de here, deixando de compreender a beleza de uma expressão como there is para querer dizer somente a. Em português, felizmente, além do A, também mantivemos o um Lá está. Sempre que uma tradução totalmente não literal, mas de alguma forma fiel a There is no there there, poderia ser Lá, lá, lá. Não só porque ela mantém os três Lás, mas principalmente porque ela diz de forma bem brasileira que aqui ainda há Lá. Talvez seja porque Lá é também uma nota musical. Sempre me lembro da tradução da canção do filme A Novita Rebelde, em que ela ensinava aos filhos do senhor Contrato as notas musicais. Para o lá, em português, a letra dizia, lá é bem longe daqui, em inglês é a noite follow sol. <risos> Quero que lá seja para sempre, bem longe daqui, e que fique mantido naquele lugar que está perfeitamente traduzido na piada dos dois caipiras que veem pela terceira vez um elefante voando bem alto no céu em direção ao leste, então um deles diz, acho que o ninho deles é para lá. Say, 
So who are you? I'm heading over there. Ai, over there, is the other person here. A very sophisticated and thoroughly Brazilian adverb, difficult for a non-native speaker to grasp. For us, bearers of the fear of the I and the fear of the other, la is reserved for uses and meanings that I consider in a chauvinistic way, more expansive and poetic than, for example, there in English, where the French law, which strangely also means fear. La, in Portuguese, exempted from being the other person's fear, gets to reserve a distance that is, and at the same time is not, indicative. La can be a determinate place, but is also, always and simultaneously, an uncertain place, everywhere or nowhere, a physical and imaginary distance, a place that's off on its own in space as well as in time. After all, if la weren't also an indication of time, why do we say, até la, until there, referring to a date? Because la is, mysteriously, a place in space and in time. It's la to where things go and from where they come. And when we say, até la, until there, it's as if we might finally, as a promise and a farewell, just this once, reach them. When the time comes to fulfill the until there, when that there becomes here and now, strangely, this there remains intact, an inexhaustible source that never stops receding into the distance. If it weren't this way, why is it then that instead of simply saying, no sé, for I don't know, we say much more emphatically, sé la, there if I know. There if I know means I don't know and I don't want to know. It's a declaration that my interest in the subject is out there, and there it will stay. It went out there, thus it's not coming back. The opposite of this, meanwhile, is the lovely expression, la boyo, there I go, indicating, oh yes now, a potent and confident desire to, in this case, go out there. La boyo, there I go, is the meeting of a challenge head on. It's a here and now charged with la, there, that's nobler and more daring. The very inversion of the phrase, there I go, instead of I'm going there, immediately lends nobility and courage to the person who there goes. It's like a secular, let God's will be done, which results in, at the very least, a heightened grandeur. Whoever utters and carries out the promise of there I go can say that they were there. Gertrude Stein, enriching the poverty of English, at least in this sense, says that she wouldn't remain in the United States because there is no there there. It's true. English, under the force of pragmatism, has lost the faraway and unfathomable sense of a there that is solid, indomitable. There became simply the opposite of here, no longer comprising a beauty of an expression like there is, because it strictly means that something exists. In Portuguese, fortunately, along with a, there exists, we've also retained la está, there it is. I think a completely non-literal translation of there is no there there, although faithful in a certain sense, might be la la la, <laughs> not only because it maintains the three there's, but maybe because it says, in a thoroughly Brazilian way, that there still exists here, aqui, aí, 
and you have love. Maybe it's because love is also musical lyrics. I always remember the translation of that song from the movie The Sound of Music on Lisa Hazelji, in which she teaches Happy Long Talks to children the lyrics of the scales. For love, the lyrics in Portuguese went, La, ouvimos daqui, la, a long way off from here. In English, it's, and no to follow so. I want love always to be a long way off from here, and for it to be kept in that place, perfectly translated in a joke about the two hits who see an elephant flying way up in the sky for the third time, heading east. And then one of them goes, I think the nest is out there, at Praha.
were not so blinded. The sensible thing, I don't know. We say much more emphatically, I, I know his wife. <laughs> In other words, my, my knowledge is, is elsewhere. That is, I don't know and I don't, I don't want to know. It is a statement that my interest in the subject is there, and from there, it is not a I guess it's because I wanted to see how the pragmatic 
English, Amer English speaking people would translate something so not, not pragmatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also because of the difficulties I find in this text. I think it's a difficult text to translate. I was very surprised with how well they were both translated. Um, I was so moved.
um, making this a text that expanded the uses of there. So that's interesting that you went with a different word, but I, I was kind of, I think you know, the sign left dropped me a hint to kind of maybe um, dig out more uses of there, but then halfway, you know, part of this text also, the way that I did it, is an attempt to explain Wa to an English-speaking audience. So I think mine really is a kind of in-between Yeah. 
there was a, a more academic kind of way of, of putting it. Well, at least create a persona that you heard reading right. this poem. Right. Are you disappointed, um, surprised? Um, hmm. is, is the persona or hearing it actually is always a revelation? Yeah, it's funny. I felt like the clear translation Is a poem written in a voice 
that is that we recognize, we understand to that we're meant to distance it from the poet. That it, we understand that it is a mask, and it is, it is constructed as a, as opposed to a narrative poem that focuses on telling a story or uh, or a lyric poem that is focused on the musicality of the language. A persona poem is a poem that trades in dramatic irony. Sorry, I'm getting. <laughs> what this big, thick book is, that is a complete source of Clarice Lispector. I thought that Katrina would be a much older woman, actually, when I saw what she'd done. Because <laughs> that would age anyone, just Harriet, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for the second half of our program, I am delighted to welcome to the stage Hiromi Ito. 
who is a poet, uh, the author of some dozen collections of poetry. Um, and among her other uh, talents is that she was born the same year that I was. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. People won't tell, but you know. Yeah. Okay. You too. Let's do a new collaboration society here. A groundbreaking prize winner, right? An eclectic writer, really. Um, the author of two books that um, have appeared in English so far. You'll find them here. Celine Canoco and Wild Grass on the Riverbank, both of which have been uh, translated by Jeffrey Angles and with a very nice introduction to her work as a whole. Uh, and she has also written, and I think it's going to be very interesting for uh, the, what is being done tonight, the best-selling book of essays uh, in Japanese, uh, the Heart Sutra, the Heart Sutra being a Buddhist classic. And to translate her, we have two distinguished professors, actually, of Japanese, both of whom studied at Columbia University. I don't know if you were the same class or not. I don't want to make any assumptions. Dean Beichmann? Beichmann.
私という存在があるあることを受け止めるそれについて思う分かろうとする分かるこれが私という存在を作るプロセスだということそしてさらに分かったのでその一日のプロセスは空っぽだということそう考えたらたちまち管だらけの日々から水と苦が抜け出した傷されしあるとあるがないは違わないあるがないとあるは違わないあるはないでないはあるだそしたらある受け止める思う分かろうとする分かるについても一つ一つ同じように考えてみるしゃるしここから見れば存在するものは全てないだ生まれてない死んでない汚くない清くない増えてない減ってないつまりこうだないと考えればここにはあるもなければ受け取るのにない思うもない分かろうとするもない分かるもないそしたらこうも言える目もない耳もない鼻もない舌もない皮膚もない心もないそしたらこんなことも言える目で見るものもない耳で聞くものもない鼻で嗅ぐものもない舌で味わうものもない皮膚で触るものもない心で思うものもない人が生きる見るから考えるまでいろいろなプロセスを生きるそれがいちいち苦につながるでも目で見るはない目で見るはないもない集約して心で思うもない心を思うないもない人が生きる何も知らないから、老いて死ぬまでいろいろなプロセスを生きる。それがいちいち苦を生んだ。でも、何も知らないはない。何も知らないはないもない。集約して、老いて死ぬではない。老いて死ぬではないもない。ああ、苦しい。苦しい。苦しい。苦しい。苦しみの原因があるから、こんなに苦しいのだ。でも、それは。そしてお集まりの皆さん私は伝えますこの言葉完成に行き着くための真の言葉
here one of the big issues really did seem to be uh, the feeling that is underlying this and what, because I felt like both translators were looking for the words that would express the feeling most powerfully, and that seemed to be dictating the choices. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I should that's not a question. No, but maybe, um, I'm afraid to give you the mic because you're just going to take over. But, really, you can sit close to me then. I'm good. You know, my English is not really good, so I have to watch it like this. Ah, okay, I speak quickly. My father always told me to. But, well, maybe you could first of all give us a little explanation of the Heart Sutra. I had somehow expected this to be a poem about grief.
sort of describing it, but then we would go back and forth. I was found myself thinking about the word pain and suffering, which uh, first I thought, oh, you know, Janine says pain and you know, no, the other way around. But then you both used them, and I don't know if they were the same word in Japanese or what your thinking was on that, and your thinking in general about how you were attacking the song. I watched a couple of videos on YouTube this morning too, so I'm just reading that. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. So the first thing I did was I realized that this this is this poem is actually an ode to translation of a translation that he wrote a little earlier in the of the Heart Sutra, and in which he she's taken it to another level and actually made it her own, so that she's almost final. In that sense, maybe it's a fulfillment poem. I don't know. Um, I'm not supposed to tease about what that is. <laughs> but but it is it's so the first thing I do, I figured I'd better find out about the Hanya, the the, the Heart Sutra, because I didn't know anything about it. So I bought a lot of books about it in Japanese and in English about it. And then I realized that the first thing that came out of that was two things actually. One is the, the word that Um, and so 
because if you don't do it, then it feels a little uncanny, right? Because there's not a gender. So um, anyway, it's a challenge. It often happens. The reason I started to do, you know, like I'm always a sutras. I, I created sutras one day, but not only that, other things as well. But then I'm sort of fascinated because we don't have uh, the Japanese translated sutras. Of course we do, but then all the scholars do. And then so, you know, we use the, the Chinese translation, you know, still now, and then we are trying to chanting, but in a very Japanese way. Don't look at the language, okay? And then in Heiratia, which is a 10th century, uh, the court hired Chinese a monk to study how to pronounce, you know, Chinese. But not now, you know, so we are all chanting in a, in a very heavy Japanese accent, and then like a bate bate, you know, this is how the Japanese way to say it. So, uh, and also so many words, like even kanman or even hanyashinyo, uh, you know, this is a Chinese word, but not actual Chinese. The person who translated from Sanskrit couldn't translate it into Chinese, so that he used the Sanskrit word itself. So, you know, that kind of word is still using in the Chinese uh, script. And then uh, we just, just chanting, thinking, not thinking, and uh, as if we understand, but we don't understand. It's always the black holes. So we just kind of, you know, go there. But I, but I have to, I mean, are you saying that no one has translated from, directly from Sanskrit into Japanese the sutras? Scholars do. Scholars. Oh, yeah. But in a dry way, you're saying? I mean, in a, in a non-literary way, though, maybe. Because yeah, scholars yeah, do it. Exactly. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I really wanted to, you know, translate, you know, if they have to start, but, you know, the language we use every day, days, and even a little bit from you, and then people can actually say that and understand the meaning, and then I believe that I could. But now I don't think so. I can't. Because, uh, like a Kabbalah, the meaning, you know, that each word contains hundreds or thousand years of the scholars study there. So each word means Ariasism. So it's, it's beyond that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the book, Janine and Keith, that you've been saying about uh, having conceptual difficulty with some parts. And, and I think that can be an issue in translation where you sometimes are faced with something that you just can't imagine. I mean, it just doesn't exist in your mind. It doesn't exist in your feelings, and you have to do something with that. Um, you were saying that about the word emptiness, which I, I was, which occurs a lot, I imagine. It occurs a lot in, in, in like I said, Sunyata.
works pretty quickly. I mean, we both turned around and text her quickly. Janine, I mean, Jay did all this research, but I gave you the poem one day, and I feel like I had to translation the next. I and think then it was you did hers again.
what the poet, how the poet constructs, you know, how the how the uh, how the art happens. Bots. The egg that's right in front of you. More questions. No. Well, I guess that just kind of wraps it up for the evening. You've been a fantastic audience. You've been a great participant. Enjoy your weekend.